So on drugs, you know, I was thinking, cool, I'm the man. I've watched Scarface, I've watched Pulp Fiction, I'm a character out of one of these movies. But it scrambled my decision-making processes. And once I got out of the drugs in the jail, a cloud lifted out of my head that I didn't know was there. And once that cloud lifted, first thing I thought was, oh my God, what have you just done for the last 10 years of your life? I realised there's good and bad in everybody. So all the prisoners that I wrote about at my blog, who I tried to humanise, I tried to focus on the good side. This conversation deals with the criminal justice system and with drugs, laws and policies. And it's with somebody who experienced those things from the inside. There's lots of reference to different kinds of crime and violence and things like that. So it's about some dark topics. And it's also a conversation about what patriarchy does to men, I think. We don't explicitly say that in the conversation and I don't suggest that my guest agrees with that assessment. But whilst editing it, that was very much in the forefront of my mind, which makes sense because I'm doing this show that's about that called What About The Men? Mansplaining Masculinity, which looks at how patriarchy hurts men and how men hurt people through patriarchy. If you're listening to this on the day that the episode comes out, then tomorrow, Thursday the 23rd of July, I'm previewing that show at the Dog Star in Brixton as a double bill with a show by Matilda Gregory called How To Be Fat, which is a, a really excellent comedy show that will follow my much more serious show. The show draws on my personal experiences, many of which have been touched on in Getting Better Acquainted conversations in the past, but there is some stuff that I've never touched on on the show, so you can get even better acquainted with me about some of the more complicated areas of my life if you come along tomorrow. The show is a preview for its run in Edinburgh. It'll be there from the 8th to the 30th of August at 12.05 at the Cabaret Voltaire Mini Cine Room every day apart from Mondays as part of the PBH Free Fringe. As I said, the show draws on my personal experience and on lots of thinking and reading that I've done over the last five years, but it also draws on a survey of a thousand men that I conducted online. I've gathered all of their responses together in an open source resource which is available online, which you can find at www.mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. And on that website, there's also more information about the show, there's a show blog, there's guest blogs from people, and you are welcome to use that data to analyze that data to expand on that data and to comment on that data many of those survey responses talk about violence bullying mental health issues childhood abuse and occasionally they do touch on crime and the criminal justice system so that's why i think that it has a connection to what you're going to hear about today but if you don't believe in patriarchy if you don't care about my show that's cool have a listen to this episode anyway doesn't have me going on about this stuff it's very interesting eye-opening important and not always easy to hear stuff that we talk about today what we do is take society's most vulnerable people people who've been traumatized as kids and put them in an environment where they're traumatized even more right where they end up 90 percent shooting heroin so they don't have to think about their lives, because their lives are so horrible to right. them. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. 
I need to get better Please make me better I want to get better 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 acquainted with you Today we're getting better acquainted with Sean. Hello, Sean. Hello, Dave. So the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? I know you through storytelling in London. Right, there we go. That's probably the shortest and simplest way to to frame it. I mean, a lot of guests on the show know me through storytelling, but most of them I've seen a few more times in my life than you. Right. I've seen you once on stage. Mm -hmm. We didn't really even interact very much that night, and you were very much telling a story, and so you'll have been in your own own zone you probably won't have even registered me particularly yep yeah um so i guess this is kind of the first time we're meeting but i know loads about your life oh dear (laughs) good things i hope you know i well i I know i only know it because they were things that you told yeah okay at that night if i've told them i hope they're good and I listen back. I mean, I listen back to your story that you told at Spark London today. You told it very in a very short form, but mm. I mean, I it's it's going to be very hard to fit into an hour, I reckon. But before we get to that, the other question that I ask everybody is, what do you do now? I've just come from HMP Thameside, Category B Prison, speaking to the prisoners there about creative writing. I did a creative writing workshop, basically. Those guys in prison. There's a lot of talent in prison, and there's a lot of aspiring writers. They're exactly where I was, you know, just over 10 years ago when I was in an Arizona jail. Human rights violations were just out of control, you know. Guards murdering mentally ill prisoners, dead rats in the food, cockroaches all over us at night times. And I thought to myself, how can I notify the world about this? I started writing everything down. It got smuggled down. It led to me becoming an author. So those guys in there are looking at me now as someone. I didn't have an English education beyond school. I didn't aspire to write. I, I thought reading was frivolous. I never read any books. To Kill a Mockingbird required reading in high school was the last book I ever read. Right. So I go in there and say, look, I'm where you guys are now. If I can do it, anyone can do it, basically. And I explain my whole journey of becoming an author from this prison in the hope that it will inspire some of them guys to see that it can be done and they can go on and do it as well. Your book that you've written mm-hmm. is a memoir, right? Yeah, my life story is a trilogy. The first one was Hard Time, which was about my time in that jail. I've got two more books in the pipeline right now. Right. One is about a guy called Two Tonys, who was a mafia guy who protected me in prison. He was serving 141 years. Right. Left the dead bodies of rivals from Arizona to Alaska. Right. Yeah, and I got attacked by a big biker guy and I had a cellmate who was threatening me he was a serial home invader torturer and two Tony's gave my life out of the blue and started protecting me and then he dictated his life story to me right so I've just put the putting the finishing touches to that right now right hopefully okay. it'll get published next year I promised the guys in prison that I would keep putting their stories on the internet right and over time if I succeeded as an author I would get those stories out as individual stories right so two Tonys is going to be the first one to come out as an individual story after mine right the next one after that is going to be a guy called T-Bone he was a six and a half foot uh, African American guy former marine entire body covered in scars from all his life and death fights and, and from being in the military and he was protecting young people from the rapists in the prison risking his life over and over and over smashing these rapists and some of them were you know they were stabbing him hitting him in the head with river rocks and socks he's been inches of losing his life on more than one occasion right incredible guy with a big heart to, in a cutthroat environment to be protecting these young people right yeah you were in a maximum security right and then you were then in a medium security i did every single security level 
and I was in about, I don't know, 10 or so facilities over just under six years. So I started out in medium security remand and then I did a, my first year and then I did another year in maximum security remand. And after that, I went to Supermax about three or four months after I was sentenced. Yeah, hard time is about my time in the remand jail because that was where the conditions were the most extreme. That prison was in America, right? Arizona. Wasn't my brightest idea to break the law in Phoenix, Arizona, where it's a redneck sheriff, Joe Arpaio, has got his own guards murdering the prisoners. And all the prisoners are completely under gang control. And if you're white, it's the Aryan Brotherhood prison gang you come under the control of. It's all racial gangs. Right. So it's intense, intense American system that you were in. And today you were in a UK prison. Today I was in this UK prison, yeah. When you were there today, I guess that must have been quite evocative for you, right? So you've got some memories, but also I bet there's loads of differences that you notice too. First time I went to a UK prison, I think I was too fresh out of coming back from America and I was intimidated by it and it gave me anxiety. But I got released in December of 2007, so now I don't feel that anxiety anymore. And going in there, yeah, it's evocative, but at the end of it, you know, when the prisoners come up and thank me and just said how helpful it had been to them and inspirational and the chemistry almost brought tears to my eyes. You know, I just thought... You know, I used to work in the stock market making all this money and that's what I was focused on was being rich and all this stuff. And then if you can touch some people's hearts like like I felt to happen today, just really, really moved me emotionally right. when I was coming out of there. Yeah, yeah, it was a nice feeling. And it's the yeah. kind of thing that, happened, that you did today. That would, would that have happened in the prison that you were in? Creative writing workshops, no. Not in the remand jail. Later on in the prison system, when I worked my way down to minimum security, I did have a brilliant uh, guy who came in and did some creative writing uh, teaching, yes. I think you know, we'll, we'll get there slowly, I mean, to a certain extent. So, mm-hmm. so you were in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were working in the stock market. Yeah. What did you do? I mean, many people mm-hmm. may consider working in the stock market in itself a criminal act in some ways, but it's not not by law. But they're, they're right, yeah, they'd be right. 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 <laughs> a, lot, a lot of what goes on, yeah. But, but, you, but, but, you know, that wasn't breaking the law. No, it wasn't. What did you do that broke the law? Well, if you, have you watched Wolf of Wall Street? I haven't, actually. Okay, Wolf of Wall Street, he gets involved in stock market fraud. That was his criminal activity. Right. He makes a lot of money through that. I was selling people legitimate shares like uh, Motorola because I owned a Motorola cell phone back then and actually trying to make my clients money. Where I became criminal was importing ecstasy into Arizona because I tried to transfer the UK rave scene out there. The UK rave scene made such a big impression on me when I was a student. Right. It was just this revolution in music across the country. Yeah. News headlines every weekend, Acid House, young people breaking into warehouses, airplane hangers. And I was like, whoa, what's going on? Mate out of Manchester had me go to my first club and take some ecstasy. And, you know, it became my religion. That's all I thought about all week long. Um, even what you know, I was doing my final exams. I was raving the weekend before. So that big impression, I thought, I'm going to go to America. My goal was to make a lot of money because I've come from this little town that didn't have any money. But when I when I do make this money, I'm going to try and transfer the race. You know, it was misguided in the sense that I just wanted everyone to have a good time. Right, I mean, that's, yeah, yeah. I mean... <laughs> but, I, but it led to me seeing the business potential of making money off ecstasy. Right. And, the, and greed and ego, mania and all that kind of stuff takes over. Because when you go from being a shy st- student in the UK to suddenly you're throwing parties for up to 10,000 people 
and you've got your own bouncers. And everyone loves you. Everyone loves you're you. bringing love <laughs> in, a, in a pill to them. Yeah, yeah. That is more addictive than the drugs. And I didn't consider myself addict. I was completely in denial about the whole thing, but I've got this addictive personality. So I was addicted to the lifestyle, I was addicted to the attention, I was addicted to the club drugs. And I surrounded myself with people who were all doing the same thing. So we just went further and further over the slippery slope together. Right. And what, I mean, when, when you're talking about a, the slippery slope, what does the, the, the slidiest part of that slope look like? You know, at the peak of it, I had people bringing in up to 40,000 pills at a time from Holland. My main competition in the ecstasy market was Sammy the Bull Gravano, underboss of the Gambino crime family, a mafia guy who killed almost two dozen people. And his son told me he'd been, you know, told to come go and kidnap me from a nightclub and take me out to the desert. He told me that in prison. The only reason we'd missed them was because my mate Wildman had got in a fight and we'd have to leave that place in a hurry. So on drugs, you know, I was thinking, cool, I'm the man. I've watched Scarface, I've watched Pulp Fiction, I'm a character out of one of these movies. But it scrambled my decision-making processes. And once I got out of the drugs in the jail, a cloud lifted out of my head that I didn't know was there. And once that cloud lifted, the first thing I thought was, oh my God, what have you just done for the last 10 years of your life? How on earth are you still alive? Right, right. Couldn't believe it. Right. Yeah. I mean, so, and so you, at the, at the, at the, at the, at the peak of your crime spree i guess or whatever we want to call it yeah you were i mean you were up against very dangerous people would you have been would you have been described as a very dangerous person not necessarily in the sense that the rave scene is not like scarface where people are pulling out chainsaws and stuff like that rave scenes it's it's a very safe in terms of drug dealing it's probably about the safest patch of territory you could deal drugs to on the other hand once you rise up the ranks, you are going to bump heads with the bigger players who are way more dangerous. When the Gravano crew was after me, the people who had my back at that time were the New Mexican Mafia. And they were the most powerful, dangerous criminal organization in Arizona at that time. And it was by fluke that I helped the guy who happened to be clicked up with them, who introduced me to them, and then they, they had my back after that. And the first time he took me over to their house, they had two TVs, biggest one I could ever possibly see in my life, next to a little one which was looking at every all the cars parked on the street it was like a cctv thing and the big one had a rocket propelled grenade launcher on top of it like out of a rambo movie bloody hell we were talking before we started recording about like films and 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 tv programs and books and one of the things like we were you know i said i'm into tv programs and you said have i I seen breaking bad yeah 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 love it yeah i mean it sounds like that that some of the stuff you're describing now sounds like Breaking Bad, like when you saw Breaking Bad, did it? Did you go, oh, this is realistic, or did you go, oh, they're getting it all wrong? No, <laughs> there's actually a quote on my book Party Time from DJ Kiyoki who says, I, I was like the Walter White of the ecstasy market in Arizona. Right. Arizona is right next to New Mexico, Walter White was based in New Mexico, right? So, as he was rising up the ranks in the drug dealing world, he was bumping heads. Or making alliances with all the same characters that I was meeting in right, Arizona. Because that's who I'm seeing when you're describing it. All of those particular actors that played those different parts, right? Watching Breaking Bad was deja vu. Um, <laughs> and it, 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 that's it was... terrifying to me. Because you, you, you like to kid yourself when you watch things like that. Like, yeah. oh, that can't be. He right. went further than me because he started killing people. Right. Well, yeah. that, that, and I never killed anybody. You, you played the structural killed. position of yeah. Walter White, but you you didn't go like he did down that road. When it got too hurry for me, when the risk was so great that I thought I'm putting myself in danger, 
my friend's in danger. I, I called it quits. And I thought I got away with it. But there's a statute of limitations for drug transactions in Arizona of seven years. You, I never got caught with any drugs. All it takes is the police to, to get one witness to say you sold them drugs within the last seven years and that's it, they've got you. Right. And so yeah. you went in for a drugs charge, yep. right? And they put you... How did you end up going into a maximum security prison for a drugs charge? Okay, I was classified to medium security, which was where I was housed for my first year. Right. Parents remortgaged the house and cashed in their retirement accounts to come with some money for a lawyer. In America, your sentence is determined by how much money you've got and who your lawyer is, basically. doesn't matter what crime you committed. Even you can get away with murder, look at O.J. Simpson. Yes, sure. So we went to have a bail hearing. The lawyer comes to the jail... I can get you out for now. We can have a bail hearing. You can fight your case outside. Getting all excited. Girlfriends excited. All my local family shopping court. People speak on my behalf. And it seems to have gone really well. Except the prosecutor was trying to make her name off my case. She sabotaged the hearing. The judge doubled my bail from $750,000 to $1.5 million cash only. When your bail goes over a mil, that's when you're reclassified to maximum security. So you basically ended up in maximum security due to a kind of bureaucratic loophole. Like, you're not supposed to go to maximum security for the crimes you committed. It was a psychological warfare <laughs> that was going on with, with me and the prosecutor. Okay. And her final FU to me was, after I got sentenced to nine and a half years, that sentence was comprised of three sentences. One of them was 26 months. And she put it down on her paperwork from the Attorney General's office as 26 years. So then I was fast-tracked to the super maximum security prison with the most violent, dangerous prisoners, including Arizona's death row. And no one believes you when you say that's an incor- that's that's not the right number. Well, it takes four months yeah. to fix that. Some, somebody else <laughs> four to, months yeah, to fix right, it. Right, right, right. Yeah. So yeah, so so that happened. What was that like? Supermax first cellmate is a uh, Satanist, got a satanic pentagram tattooed on his forehead, in for murder, part of a cult that's drinking blood and eating human body parts. And he was actually very nice to me. Right. Just read a book about Leonardo da Vinci and he gave it me and I never had any problems with him whatsoever. My neighbour was a uh, serial killer and um, it actually gave me some good stuff to write about. Right, I guess (laughs) there's that. Yeah, I'm I'm quite glad that I got to see every single security level because if I'd have just gone into, you know, boring lower custody levels and never had any conflict or met any extreme characters right probably would never ended up writing all these books <laughs> right and, so, and, and yeah you, you and you are in it that's an interesting point to make like you are you have been through all of what well i like full disclosure you, you've been through what i consider to be the prison industrial complex yeah like, absolutely. I, I don't see prison as a valid thing certainly not in the current format but i'm 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 a believer in in restorative justice anyway i don't think i think there's hardly any reason to lock anybody up and do you know why you prisons know. and the police force were formed uh just to p- protect property and power to stop people from hurting each other, as well as what you said. Right. So, if you go back centuries, millennia, crime's always been defined as murder, robbery, rape, that kind of thing. The extreme things. Yeah, yeah. but for, because of the last century, drugs which had been legal forever and hadn't caused all the problems that they've currently caused, has now resulted in prisons just becoming warehouses for non-violent drug offenders. Right. And, the, you know, the police... Absolutely sick of it. Law enforcement against prohibition, if you watch their videos on YouTube, yeah. all the time is just taking up arresting drug people and they're told that they've got to make so many arrests and they know they can just go in a neighbourhood, arrest a bunch of black people. It's so racist out there. They say it's like shooting fish in the barrel and 
fulfil all these quotas when they should be out arresting paedophiles and, and serial killers and that kind of thing. Right, sure. It makes me sick um, that this is being perpetuated because the government knows making drugs illegal does not stop people doing drugs. All it does is cause a mass supply of drugs from criminal organisations, of which the CIA is the biggest, and they're all making money off the back of it. $50,000 a year of taxpayers' money per prisoner. Let's not give them any rehabilitation. Let's allow it to be completely drug and gang infested so these guys stand no chance in life and they'll just come right back and keep this industry going. Right, I mean, it creates a cycle of violence which wouldn't necessarily be there. Like, it, 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 it's not just the fact that it's arresting people for, for drug offences which shouldn't be crimes. Also, because it's illegal, it, it causes gang warfare. It causes, oh God, like, hierarchical systems growing up around it with no... In for, like no social mm-hmm. rules around them, of course, you know, and it means that people are brutalized from young ages, you know, in those communities as well. So it's yeah. it's it's a really really fucked up situation. Like most drug arrests are weed, <laughs> right? The most common drug in prison is heroin, followed by crystal meth in Arizona. So young people come in busted with weed, um, or they've done some other non-violent drug offense. They're terrified of the gang. They feel they've got to click up or they're going to get killed. So the gang recruits them then, has them putting in the work, which means beating people up or killing them to earn their tattoos, turns them on to heroin, crystal meth. Two-thirds of the guys had hepatitis C rose house, 90% shooting up, and they get out enemies of society. Irving Brotherhood Prison Gang right now is one of the number one causes of murder in the whole of the country, and that's a product of the US prison system. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, and and, and the the Ar- Ar- Aryan Brotherhood are the one like they they you had communications with them initially, right? Because you're you're white, and in fact you you, you look like you could be a member of the Aryan, <laughs> you know, which is I'm not saying that you know yeah. in an offensive yeah. way, but yeah, you know no, right, yeah. you, you, they go right, okay, he's one of us. Join our join our gang. Although I guess it's not as nice as that. It's not like, oh, he's one of us. It's like when you join the gang, it's like you have to be part of this brutal system yeah. rather than, hey, you're you're protected by us. So what was that like? What, what happens that? is you walk in and the Aryan brother would come up to you if you're white and say, here's the rules. You know, no talking to the guards, that's snitching. No sitting with the other races. Take showers, otherwise we'll smash you for bad hygiene. And so on and so on and so on. If anyone calls you a punk or a bitch, you must fight them on the spot. If anyone hits you, you must fight them on the spot. Or else we, we, we will all attack you. And then you have to go meetings, like the white boy meeting, and if they have to take votes on certain issues and stuff like that. If you want to be a full member, you've got to commit acts of violence. And I wasn't about that. I was hiding out of my cell, reading and writing. I read over a thousand books in just under six years. I tried to turn it into the education opportunity of a lifetime. A lot of people were arrested with me, and they kind of look, we all looked out for each other when we first came in, so we could resist the gang pressure a little bit and over time I learned to, learned to play out around the gang rules right but you were yeah. a member you had to be a member of a gang not a member to be a member you have to go and beat someone up or kill them right but you were if you whatever race, surf- whatever race you are you're under the umbrella of the shot callers for that gang right. so if you're black it's the Mau Mau's if you're Mexican it's the Mexican Mafia if you're white it's the Aryan Brotherhood if they call a meeting everyone from that race has to go to a meeting Otherwise, you're going to get attacked. Right. Yeah. So it's a fine line, you know. These are neo-Nazi guys. And if you don't do what they say, you're going to get smashed or killed. But also, you don't want to go along with, you know, this neo-Nazi clip. Yeah, right. So you've got to play this, this, the rules and, and walk along this fine line your entire existence in the jail. As, as well as the guard rules as well. It's the same thing. Disobey the guards or act up and, you know, the guards are going to taser you down or they're going to kill you. 
got multiple videos on my YouTube channel of the guards murdering people in, in the jail. They were just mentally ill people. They weren't big bad gang members or anything like that. Right, because the, you, they, they don't go for the people with power. They go for the weak people, which is the same as... They're working the with the people in power. Right. Gangs, yeah, right, right. working with... The guards, I mean, they find out where the guards live. They send women to seduce them. They have the guards smuggling drugs in. They had a nurse smuggling drugs in who was arrested while I was there. The guards feel they're low paid and on the front line and they're not, you know, the sheriff, the boss jails out doing all these publicity stunts. And it, 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 it would be nice to make some extra money. Right. That sounds terrifying, the idea of having to go to these meetings, like, mm. regardless of the, you, the fact that, you know, you're, you're disgusted by the ideology, you're yeah. afraid, yeah. right? You're physically afraid for yourself, because mm. I guess as soon as you go into that meeting, anything could happen. Like, yeah. if, they, if one of them looks at you funny, like it's, mm. I mean, it really does sound like my worst nightmare. Yeah, yeah fights break out over nothing. You could be walking along a corridor, and someone says, what are you looking at? And you say nothing, and then he says, are you calling me nothing? And then, bam. Right. It, it just breaks out like that. When you are getting trying to get used to the sounds of heads getting cracked against the toilet and people getting carried on stretches that look like they're dead, and people doing that out of gang members, you quickly think of ways to appease them, even though you're against that yeah, of course. ideology. So it's, it's like a video game. Every present danger, and you just every day you don't know what's going to come at you next, and you just got to get through it and use any tools and help that come come your way. Right. Everything you're thinking about in your everyday life, straight out the window. What am I doing with my girlfriend tonight? Going out for dinner? Blah blah blah. It's who can hurt me? Who can I possibly make an alliance with that will help me? It's raw survival. Right, and you yeah. did make alliances as, yeah, it, as it went on. I certainly did, yeah. The major alliance that you made was with two Tonys. Right? Yeah, yeah. Early on, it was with Wildman, who was my best friend from my hometown. 25 stone, all his knuckles are human teeth marks, his nose is pointing over here. He's a great guy to get arrested with, if you're a skinny, <laughs> nerdy guy like me. But I got split from my co-defendants after a couple of years. Got attacked by a biker, um, had the serial home invader, torture a cellmate, and I got a new cellmate because I, mo- I got a moved out of the cell with the serial home invader torture. <laughs> he was the one <laughs> breaking into houses and taking hammers to people's kneecaps, and he right. was threatening to smash my skull in with a padlock and a sock. Fuck. Yeah, and it was the only time I got so scared I called outside help and my family called the British Embassy I mean, and they got me moved without you, getting him in trouble. You were in the cell with him. Like, yeah. You had to, like, in theory, you were supposed to sleep in that cell. I, I don't know if you would have been able to, right, I guess? When I got moved to Buckeye Prison, medium security, after I was sentenced, I walked into that cell and the first thing he said to me was, I've got a padlock in a sock, I can smash your brains in while you sleep, I can kill you whenever I want. And I said, I'm a quiet guy, all I do is read and write. I'm probably the best cellmate you could ever have. And he said, you're a fresh fish. I'm an old con. And I don't like being housed up with fresh fish. And then I went to put my property on my bunk. And he had some paperwork up there. And I put it on his property. And he freaked out. And he was about to, was about to escalate into a fight. But Sammy the Bull's son, the ecstasy guy, right. came upstairs and he knew me. And we'd already made the piece back in the remand jail. And he vouched for me then and um, took the other guy out of the cell and took him downstairs to cool off. But I still had to live with him for a couple of months until I managed to get moved out of that cell. And what he did was, he knew my parents were coming over to visit me for Christmas and he got his mate, a 20-stone California biker, to attack me when they'd just come over to visit me for Christmas. Right. This is in a, I was walking along a crowded corridor, as happy as can be, looking forward to seeing my mum and dad. And this big tattooed guy with like almost a handlebar moustache comes up and bam starts kidney punching me 
now you've got to hit back otherwise you're a punk and all the prisoners are going to prey on you you know they're going to punk you out so i tried hitting back and it was like hitting a big bag of cement and he was trained in kickboxing so he spun me around and smashed me up and i ended up going to the visit all injured okay. and it was after that when i got back from this to my cellmate you know and he's he's on the heroin and the meth keeping me awake all night showing me the padlock like he's going to smash my skull in with interrogating me and it was impossible to sleep around him you know I, I, it's the desert and it's really hot and I've got all these skin infections and bed sores and I'm putting this blanket around me because I'm afraid you know, he's going to attack me in my sleep and it'll cushion me a little bit so in the end my family called the British Embassy but we had to make it clear you know, when you call the prison to see if they will move him don't say he said anything about this guy threatening him because that would make me a snitch mm-hmm. and snitching it's KOS kill on sight all the prisoners want to kill me for that right yeah <laughs> Right, I mean, I mean, it must have been some complicated feelings you were having around your parents too, right? They, oh. they, they've come over to visit you, but they also, you, they, they, what, you said they remortgaged the house. Right? Yeah, yeah. My poor parents, you know, when I was out there making all this money and running around on the drugs, I should have been thinking about them. And at the end of the day, they're the people who came every year to visit me in prison, travelled all 5,000 miles, waited for hours out in the desert to get in these visitation rooms, and were insulted by guards and stuff like that, and... Just seeing my mum sat there, you know, looking all frail and, and, and the, 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 the pain on her face that she come all this way to bloody support me. Um, it's one of the things that really makes me feel blessed. And it also is one of the things that, you know, people say, why don't you, have you ever attempted to go back to drugs and stuff like that? And I said, God, you know, I would never, ever want to put my parents through anything like that again. Yeah. My mum had a nervous breakdown, my sister had counselling. And I still see the hurt and pain on their faces when I see them that I've caused them. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just one of my biggest regrets as well as putting people on that road of drug use, which leads to prison and the police and death. Wild Man was your first ally. Yeah. But he, he, he was taken from you and you were split up. And then you were alleyless and, and, and then you met two Tony, I guess. What happened was, after I got moved <clears throat> out of the cell with the serial home invader torturer... Right. I got put in a new cell, and I got a new cellmate, and he'd just come from Supermax, this new cellmate, his name was Long Island, and coincidentally, just before he left Supermax, his neighbour had said, if you see an English guy, called English Sean, he's a good he's a good dude, I work with him in the rave scene, look out for him, walk in the cell, and the first thing he says to me, are you an English dude? I'm like, yeah, why? And he starts saying he knows this guy, called Gangster Dan, and I'm like, yeah, I know Gangster Dan. And what did he tell you? And he's going, blah, blah, blah. I says, you know, look out for you. You're a good dude. You did some business on the streets. So next thing, Long Island says, I want you to meet somebody. And I didn't know what he was planning. But he was a good guy. He was like guardian angel, Long Island. And he must have known that if he introduced me to Two Tonys and Two Tonys liked me, because Two Tonys had murdered rival gangsters only, he was at the top of the respect in the prison. And if you get in with him, then it, it would be a, a protective influence. So he says, I'm going to go and get two Tonys and you can have a game of chess with him. I said, well, what's he in for? He said, mass murder. I said, hold on a minute. Are you sure I want to be playing chess with this, this guy who's in for mass murder? He goes, yeah, yeah, it's cool. I'll go get him. So he goes and get him and then two Tonys comes along and he starts joking about England and the Beatles and this kind of stuff and we start playing chess. And as he's playing chess, he's very vocal. He's announcing that how he's going to move his pieces on the chessboard. And I'm thinking... You know, I could just really beat him very easily right now because he's announcing his game plan. Or I could slow play it and maybe 
he would appreciate that because he doesn't want to lose so quickly. And then I thought, but if a slow player, he's going to see through that, that I'm doing that on purpose and think I'm a fraud, I best just go ahead and just beat him as quick as possibly can. <laughs> right. And hopefully you won't be mad. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's definitely, a, that's definitely a risk. Like, you don't yeah. know him yet. Yeah, a... don't know him, don't know which way to go. But I'm thinking, in prison, people can see through any kind of act that is not sincere. Prisoners have got a built-in bullshit detector. And I'm thinking I best go on, on the side of that. And then this guy, you know, obviously has got that to an extreme degree, this right. bullshit detector. So I did. I just beat him. And he said, why did you beat me so quickly? And I said, because you were saying your moves. I, I knew what you were going to do. You made it easy for me. And Long Island says, yeah, you, well, basically what you did was, if you're playing cards, you don't show someone your hand of cards in a game of cards. Do you? And then Tutoni slapped his head. And to this day, when I look back on it now, I think he was just testing me. Because he's extremely intelligent. I think the whole thing was a test. And he just turned around then and, and he said, Sean, I like you. I've met a lot of guys on the road of life. And to stay alive, I've had to become a quick judge of character. I feel that you're honest. And would you be interested in writing my life story? <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. Long Island previously told him I was a writer and I was doing blogs. And some of my blogs had got in the newspapers. So... From then on, I started putting blogs of his on the internet, and very quickly, the readers, he became the most popular character at the blog, and they were readers were sending all questions and comments for him. Now, if you've ever watched any of these Mafia shows, or watched any Mafia interviews on YouTube, you know, these New York thug types just come across, not very well educated, street smart, just, you know, rough and ready. But in terms of two Tonys, he had all that, but he'd also spent so many years in prison reading books and educating himself. His natural voice is the mafia, a street smart, meets this learned person who's got, you know, for example, the philosopher Schopenhauer, his pet name for him was The Shop. <laughs> so he's talking this Italian mafia, his Irish Italian mafia voice about The Shop. The Shop's in this. That's what makes him so unique. And I'm just, you know, doing his life story right now, putting the finishing touches to it. And he's dead, but it's like his spirit lives on in me. He taught me so much about life. Right. About appreciating the small things, especially. The prisoners would constantly complain about stuff. And he would say, his, one of his favourite books was A Day in the Life of Ivan Donosovic, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Right. Have, you, have you read it? I haven't, but you've, I've, heard, okay. I've heard this element of the okay. story, yeah. Yeah, so in the Russian gulag, you know, they're getting frostbite, they're losing fingers, they're wrapping socks around their ears so they don't lose their ears, they're getting worked to death on the Stalin. These are just political prisoners. It's so cold if you spit, you spit freezes midder, and they're fighting over fish eyeballs in the soup, so... When prisoner, prisoners would complain about the breakfast being uh, cold or recreation not happening on time, you know, you'd just, just be like, oh, where Ivan was, if you, you refused to work, you know, they'd drag you, drag you, horse would drag you to death or they'd, you know, hang you from a tree and, you know, really putting things into perspective. And yeah, you know, I just really, really appreciate meeting him. To go nerdy business graduate from the UK to meeting Italian mafia associate who was classified as a mass murderer, it's just... I mean, it's an amazing thing to happen, but it's a hard... I mean, it's a lot 
to pay for that amazing connection with that guy like it's uh, it's it must have been amazing to you to mm. experience his humanity and yeah. as well as his story yeah but at the same time you know i don't think it's worth the trade-off what do you mean well i mean it, i think i would have preferred to have just stayed the nerdy business uh, <laughs> graduate do you know what i mean but would you have lived life to the fullest extent then i mean you know you can't you can't go back so it's good to appreciate what, yeah. whatever your your forward story goes you yeah. Know? yeah i mean uh there's a there's a quote i always like which is uh, forgiveness means uh, giving up all hope for a better past right? right and I think that's the only way you can do it you go right but the past was the past yeah. and that's the, the good things were good yeah yeah I mean it's a trade off isn't it when you're addicted to that excitement right there's going to be a price to pay at some point but you can also say that you've done certain things that you never could possibly have done right if you were risk averse yeah know? no absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. and two Tony's like he basically kept kept you safe to a certain extent i never got attacked after two tony's took me under his wing wow i did get in some situations and you know i grew so close to him by the end of it he said i was like the son that he never had when i had to say goodbye to him at the chain link fence just before i was getting deported we were both had like tears in our eyes it was just so moving and even writing his book there was times when I was writing his book and when I actually started crying. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I believe it. And the emotion's obviously yeah. still there a lot. Yeah. Um, but, but, I mean, I guess that's... I mean, that's... It, 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 he, he sounds like he's such a fascinating uh, person to have met. Mm. But, I mean, I guess that he is... He must have been a complex person to know. He, yeah. he wasn't in there for a drugs offence. Mm-hmm. He was there for... As you say, mass murder, which yeah. maybe those murders are, are, are more business decisions than yeah. than, vi- than violent outbursts. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, I kind of relate more to violent outbursts than business decisions in terms of murder. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I mean, it, it's both. <laughs> right. When you join up for the mafia, you are signing a contract, basically an unwritten contract, that it's kill or be killed. Right. So you know at any time a rival could kill you or you might have to kill a rival. It's like being a soldier. That's how he said it almost. Was that, you know, if you join the military, you're getting paid to kill people or people are going to possibly yeah, kill you. It's just a, it's, it's a, private, it's, yeah. it's a, a private version of the military yeah. for sure. Like, I, I, I see that connection very clearly. I'm not making excuses for murder. He, he knows <laughs> from childhood he had psychopathic tendencies which led to him becoming homicidal. And he channeled that then into organized crime and later he went and formed his own gangster crew in alaska which is where his murders commenced and the murders started once he got on drugs and he always said to me sean when you get out don't go back to drugs he said there's three sections to my life bd before drugs when i was loving life the excitement the buzz i was healthy during drugs when his mind was in the ozone layer decision making processes scrambled had no values for family, all this kind of stuff, and where he started murdering people. And then AD after drugs, where you just sat in prison for 140 years, scratching your ass, wondering what the hell you did while you were on drugs and, right. and regretting it. Yeah, so... I mean, how old was he when you met him? I would say he was in his late 50s, right. perhaps. Yeah. And he'd been there a while? Yeah, he'd, he'd, he'd served a long time, yeah. 
And did he have? He had a life sentence, I guess, or a couple. Yeah, several life sentences. He yeah. beat the death penalty twice. Wow! Because he said he beat the death penalty because the people that he murdered weren't lunchbox in hand on the way to the office from families. You know that would have got up and said something, but they were people who would have sold heroin to your kid or killed him if they'd have had the opportunity before he could have killed them right kill yeah. the right kill the kill the wrong kind of people and no one no one wants you to die for it his catchphrase was they all had it coming <sighs> yeah. yeah yeah i mean yeah so that's a complicated as a business graduate nerdy guy mm. that was well into love and the yeah. Yeah. yeah to spend a long time documenting the life of a, a killer yeah who you cared for as well? I yeah. Mean, how yeah. do you how do you how do you square that? Like, I'm not saying you shouldn't. I mean, I think Ooh, when you put think, it like that, I mean, I think people are complicated, and I I I, I have love for people who yeah. who, are, who have terrible sides. Um, not necessarily as extreme mm. as that, but my philosophy on life has been since prison to see prisoners as human beings, because before I got arrested, all I saw was extreme crimes, prisoners of pedos. Prisoners are serial killers, lock them up and throw away the key. And all I ever saw as well in the news was how easy it was for them in prison. It's gourmet food, playstations, all this kind of stuff. Holiday camps back then when I, you know, that's the kind of thing I, I would see. But once I got in there and saw all the sad stories and how these people had been brutalised as kids, didn't have the educations I had, didn't have the family support that I had, and not they weren't violent people, they had addiction issues or they were mentally ill, and a lot of them returning soldiers... Stuff like that. Prison right. system's biggest house of the mentally ill. Absolutely. My heart opened from being this person who was doing all this selfish partying behaviour to someone who thought, you know, I've got this education. I can articulate their sad stories. I'm on a mission now to bring awareness to the world of what's going really going on in here. All these people making money off these people's backs. And I realised there's good and bad in everybody. So all the prisoners that I wrote about at my blog, who I tried to humanise, I tried to focus on their good sides in the belief that by focusing on their good sides, it would help it come out. Mm. And people would come up to me and say, Sean, why are you writing stories? This guy is a piece of shit. You know, he's done these crimes. And, and I would say, look, if, if I focus on that, what he's done bad, that's not going to help him get ahead in life, is it? It's just going to make him focus on that and be more negative and possibly turn back to drugs. Even with two Tonys, you know, um, out of the kindness of his heart, he came into my life and perhaps saved my life when there was a situation when an Aryan Brotherhood gang leader took offence to me writing a blog about pe people doing drugs in prison. And things went on behind the scene that probably to this day I don't even understand or, or we'll never find out because of what the strings that two Tonys pulled to get me off that hook. And... He'd done that in other situations as well with people. So he took lives, but he also saved some lives. Sure. I mean, I, that yeah. is my belief anyway. That, yeah. that I don't believe in evil people. I believe it's good in, and bad. Everybody's right, I believe got in the evil actions, but not evil yeah. people. Yeah. And I think that, that if we want to stop evil actions, we have to try and help people rather, yeah. than, rather than what we do. Um, which you're articulating, you yeah. know, from your experience much better than I ever can with my, my yeah. opinions formed on, you know, reading articles, not on experiencing it. What we do is take society's most vulnerable people, people who've been traumatised as kids, and put them in an environment where they're traumatised even more. Right. Where they end up 90% shooting heroin so they don't have to think about their lives because their lives are so horrible to right. them. 
And when you were in that environment, it's interesting because one of the one of the sorts of things that people use to mm. to to suggest this. I agree, this uh, kind of counter-narrative that the media mm. likes to say about how uh, it's just like a, it's like a, de- it's like a holiday yeah. in prison. One of, the, one of the things that they would seize on about this conversation is mm-hmm. that you were writing a blog from in prison. Yeah. Right? That's exactly the kind of thing where they go, look, they've got computers, mm. they're having a whale of a time. Yeah. But obviously you weren't having a whale of a time. No, my blog was started with a tiny little pencil that you see in a betting shop, sharpened against the door. And I was writing this stuff on sweat soaked scraps of papers on this little stool and my aunt smuggled them out of the maximum security jail at consider you know risk to herself Fuck. yeah wow yeah there's no internet access right no, nothing like that yeah wow. and it was yeah. anonymous i guess we, we put it on my mom didn't want us to do it because she saw about the guards murdering the prisoners in the jail and in the end we decided to put it on the internet as john's jail journal so no one would know it was me that's how it began. Did you get like to a point where you could write it from inside, or did it have to continue yeah. that way the whole way through? In the remand jail, the blog started at the tail end of that period. Once I get moved over to the prison system, which is a separate legal jurisdiction, we didn't feel as at risk because it was the remand jail where the guards were routinely murdering the prisoners. Right. In the prison system, each building was named after a guard had been murdered by the prisoners. The other way around. Right. My name was released to the media, but it took them a while to catch up with it. Since then, they've classified all my books and my blog as a threat to the security of the institution, and the prisoners aren't allowed to write to me, but they just write to somebody else, and he forwards the letters to me. Right, and so and but so it sounds like what you became within that prison was a chronicler from the inside. Like you were, yeah. as you say, one of the you had a mission to tell their story. Um, you were doing it as you were experiencing it to a certain extent. Like yeah. you know, there's a lot of memoirs that come out after prison, but you, this was real time. Yeah. So you were actually reporting on people yeah from within the prison and mm-hmm. so there must have been a feedback loop some of them must have read it you're saying that you were under threat because you wrote a particular blog yeah like how did that work within the what happened was prisoners started to get printouts mailed to them of my blog so that's how other prisoners started to find out what i was doing now, all the things i wrote about i made sure i never wrote about anything that could get anyone in trouble never used any real names and Anything I wrote about a specific prisoner, he would read it before I mailed it out. Right, that's a very good ethic. Yeah, because so guys, would, guys would come into my cell and say, if you write anything about me, I'm going to kill you. Right. Or I've heard you've written something about me. Right. People so, would say to them, Atwood's writing stuff about you just to try and get someone to smash me. Right, of course. And then I would have to explain to them how I was actually doing it to put them straight. Well, one of the things that a writer is, certainly a journalist, but, but I'd say any kind of a writer, is kind of a snitch. Like yeah. that's kind of the, mm. the the role of of writing is to absorb other people's stuff yeah. and kind of steal it. Well, anyone um, who's perceived as a snitch in prison, it's kill on sight. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So I was I was pushing that boundary. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And when that Aryan brother put that hit out on me for two days before two Tonys could get things under control, the whole prison yard was up in arms. Right. Half of them wanted to kill me, and half of them were protecting me. Bloody and I had people in my cell round the clock looking out for me. Yeah, but I mean, so but people were protecting you. Yeah, so I guess some people were seeing the value in reporting the untold story. Not just that, the guys I was writing about was a regular cast of characters, and they had followings on the internet, and they were getting like not a fan mail, but pen pals and books right. sent to them from around the world. And right, right. It became a bridge to the outside world for all of us. 
And if you're serving decades in prison and you thought you would never communicate with anyone outside those walls again, yeah. those letters from these kind blog readers were like lifelines. Well, yeah. And it was the kindness of those people as well. They, there was a proper Shawshank Redemption moment where they sent all these books to the prison. I was allowed seven books in my cell. Redneck guard, aviator sunglasses, chewing tobacco, you know, that's like, like see like this out of Comes wheeling this car across the desert. All the prisoners are looking, bright orange outfits. What's this about? They, you know, hungry eyes, books, is it a book for me? And he says, oh, get your ass down here. How many books are you allowed in your cell? Seven. <laughs> I've got 57 books in this cart for you right now. You've got so many books in here, I could classify them as contraband and destroy them all. But you know what? I've heard you're filling the library up and sharing these books up with the guys, and I'm just going to turn the other way, and all these books are going to disappear. And the mates just all ran over. It was like, we're like an ant trail across the desert with all these wow. books. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> so yeah. the, the prisoners who knew what was going on, who didn't listen to the rumours, saw that I was helping the prisoners in on multiple fronts, filling the library with books, exposing the human rights violations and getting them pen pals and stuff like that. And at the end of the day, that's what saved me. Well, yeah, you were doing a service. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because when you, when you were detailing how you went about treating the, their stories, yeah. I thought it was incredibly good ethics, right? Mm. That's, that was my initial thought as someone yeah. on the outside, like, mm-hmm. But in fact, it, it was, but it was, it was incredibly good self-preservation. It was self-preservation. Right? Because you had yeah. to, you, and, and, and there's nothing like living or dying on a story to make someone have really good journalistic ethics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was self-preservation. Right. More than the other, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it, 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 yeah. That's... If it's life or death, and people are getting killed for as little as $50 worth of heroin, you make sure that... It causes you to focus on yeah. not stepping on any of the mines in the field. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I guess that's the thing that... that I mean, one of the things that stands out to me, so many things stand out mm. to me, I mean, about this, and it's it's so weird, you know, having very little reference point for this, you know, so all of the time I am thinking in terms of films, you know, like Breaking Bad, mm-hmm. Orange is the New Black, Short yeah. Redemption, yeah. all that stuff is coming through my head when, when, when you're saying all these things, because mm-hmm. that's the only reference I've got. Yeah. You've... You've, you know, you've properly lived this experience. Um, so, but one of the things that seems to me to stand out is that, like, the, within those pr- the, this prison system that is fueled by drugs, but all yeah. the people who end up there go in for drugs offences yeah. so often, there is also so much within that system. So you can go in, like you say, and go in having, you know, just maybe smoked weed, and then you can come out having a heroin addiction that's the norm yeah right mm-hmm. i mean and so when when we were talking about things that you might want to talk about in this conversation mm-hmm. you sort of like you were like i want to talk about drugs mm-hmm. and you wanted to, to also you'd just been reading chasing the scream right yeah the which is by johan hari which mm-hmm. who is a who is he's quite a controversial journalistic mm-hmm. figure because he was he was accused of doing some things yeah but the the interview I've heard of him talking about this book and the content that it sounds like is in this book yeah. sounds like stuff I I I hardly agree with. I mean, yeah. What what did you have to say about that book and about drugs in general within this system? The book Chasing the Scream brought tears to my eyes. It was so well written and so moving. Rather than be a bunch of facts and figures, he interwove 
a number of anecdotes going back 100 years to encompass the entire war on drugs. And he showed the complete horror of what these policies have led to in such an emotionally strong way. It just blew my mind. And I think this is why it's just selling massively in America right now. And props to him because this is what needs to come along to change people's opinions. Because what does the average person think? All right, drugs are bad. The government's made them illegal because drugs are bad. And that will stop people taking drugs. That's what I used to think. (laughs) It's complete and utter nonsense. The government knows making drugs illegal doesn't stop people taking drugs because they start they tried to do that with prohibition of alcohol and it just led to criminal gangs taking over the mass production of it and people drinking milder forms of alcohol but then concentrating on the hardest forms of alcohol because that's what the gangs made the most money off that's exactly the same as what's happened with drugs when you when they made drugs illegal price of drugs shot up these drugs were legal for you know eternity before yeah yeah, yeah. you could buy them in shops you could buy them in chemists you could buy them in supermarkets or whatever prominent people queen victoria freud all these people you know did these drugs there was never any problems and extremely strong drugs from opiates as well so they were made illegal which then shot the price up because they were worthless before that which which was an incentive for criminal gangs to mass produce them. So right now we've got a trillion dollars worth of drugs being produced a year. And we've got the entire prison systems filled up with non-violent drug offenders. Right. Fred West, one of the reasons he was getting away with the murders for so long, he was snitching out drug dealers. Yeah. So if they repealed all these asinine laws, the court systems would empty. The prison systems were empty. The criminal gangs, such as the Mexican cartel, who are knocking heads off, you know, faster than anyone else in the world. Decapitations, hanging people from poles in Mexico and saying, we are the law now in your town and stuff like that. These guys are all trained and and, uh, given weapons by the US. All that would end. But there's so much money being made off the back of drug prohibition right now Mm -hmm. that the people in power will not repeal those laws. They keep them going because of the money that's being made and because politicians, when they say they're going to be tough on crime, they get more votes. It's got to the point in America now where the prisons have got one in 100 adults in prison it's extremely racist. Blacks are about ten percent of the population. I think half of drug arrests are black people right. and Mexican Americans. Right, and it's and you get you get arrested if you're black with with drugs. When if you're white, you don't get arrested hardly ever with, with those same drugs. I've got quotas. Right, they don't have to go in the black neighbourhood shooting fish in a barrel. They can meet their quotas. They don't have to go in the white neighbourhood. Those are the kids of the lawyers, of the judges, and stuff like that. And they'll be held to pay, and they'll lose their funding. Right. Yep. So these drug laws also came out of racism in America. They, they, it, was, it was parlayed into black guys are giving women white women coke. Right. You know, so that's how it started was arresting all these blacks. The Chinese coolies, they're seducing the white women. Let's make opium illegal. Put all the Chinese coolies in jail. And that's why right now you've got, I think it's one in 30 some adult black guys in prison in America. But the, but the, but the amount of money to be made 
from drug dealing has now got so big that the US government, which started the war on drugs, is now the biggest dealer of the drugs through the CIA. Right. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I researched this so intensely because I heard stories over the years the CIA is the biggest drug dealer, government's biggest drug dealer. How can the government that's putting all these people in prison for drugs be the biggest drug dealer? I just thought that was a conspiracy theory. Right. But now that I have listened to the testimonies of insiders who've worked with the CIA, family members who've lost people to CIA who've killed them because they were privy to knowledge about the CIA drug dealing, you know, it, it, it just blows my mind. I, I wish Chasing the Scream had gone to that level as well and it kind of exposed that. But I'm, I'm work, I've been working on a book that's going to take it to that level as well, so... I mean, then there's all sorts of other elements that are all sort of like cross over all of these things. Like there's also laws around sex work as well, which is which again, there's an industry around mm-hmm. prohibition of, of sex work as well. And and you know, it again always hurts people at the bottom. All of these things hurts people can, right at the bottom on the yeah. edges of everything. They're the worst affected, and anyone from a marginalised group, anyone who's yeah, who's 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 not who's not a white man like us, although you have been hurt in this war too. I mean, from a position of, of more privilege, I guess. But I mean, well, it did me know. a lot. It did me good. I'm actually the poster child. Yeah, right, right, right. It's, it's, been, it's saved my life but, but, and put me on a positive track. Yeah, but then I mean, I guess. That's the question. Could would you know very? It, if you were black, would that have happened that way? You know, do you it, know what it I mean? doesn't work for the masses. The young people come in to write a passage to get click up with the gang, get into harder drugs, get into harder criminal involvement, make those connections in prison, parlay it into bigger crimes, and the prison knows that, and that's what keeps them in business. That's why these states are spending more on prisons than they are on education. And the gang as well, the gang knows it. They give them all these tattoos on their faces, swastikas on their foreheads and stuff like that because if they get out and go for a job interview, they don't stand a chance in the world. Right, comes right, comes right in, back, yeah, comes right back to the gang. So they've got the government and the state keeping them institutionalised and they've got the gang keeping them institutionalised. It's really hard to break that cycle. Yeah. And how do you feel about drugs? I mean, because it's, it's interesting because mm. we, 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 one of the things we're talking about is the industry that's around drugs that is yeah. definitely destroying people. Like, like, however you feel about drugs, it's a little bit like sex work. However you feel about it, if you want harm reduction, mm. if you want people to survive, if you want less people to die, yeah. then you have to be against prohibition. But you have some experience mm. of addiction and you've yeah. seen what drugs can mm. do to people when they're when they're addictive and, and destructive mm. so you can't be like yay way hey drugs mm. you've said stuff that's implied that you would never do drugs again you'd mm. never go back yeah. down that road mm-hmm. i mean where, where are you on that scale of where you people where have you? always took drugs two-thirds of young people in the uk right now try drugs mm-hmm. most of them go on to have completely normal lives definitely a percentage of them like me, that have got addictive personality, will self-destruct and die or end up in prison. So I put my story out there to young people when I go into schools and say, look, you know, here's what can happen to you. I would prefer none of you to go down that road. And hopefully I'm saving the ones that have got the addictive personality types from ending up getting in some real kind of harm. Right. That's another one of my missions. I do, I do yoga, so I'm trying to restore my karma. <laughs> but drug laws presently turn people into bigger addicts because if you take people who are vulnerable and on drugs and put them in a stressful environment, and that's one of the things Chasing the Scream 
talks about is the, the experiment with the rats called Rat Park, where they put all these rats in a prison, had them locked in their cells. They were allowed to have water that was normal water or water that was laced with some kind of opiate, I think it was. And the rats got depressed and they went to the opiates and they died. And the U.S. actually used that study then to say all drugs will cause addiction and drug addicts need to be in prison and drugs need to be eradicated to, to stop this evil. But what they hadn't done was allowed rats choices. In Rat Park, there were some rats stuck in the cells. There were some rats who could go out and have recreation and socialise, copulate and enjoy themselves. And those rats chose, they tasted the opiate-laced water, but they chose to drink the normal water and they didn't kill themselves. So the point is, it's the stress of your environment that compounds your propensity to take drugs. Right. And that's on the outside as well as on the inside yeah. I think I mean because so many people who end up in prison have really poor socio-economic mm-hmm. circumstances and yeah. so of course you want to get high and check out mm-hmm. if you if you're if you haven't got fun yeah. going on yeah. like surely everyone can understand that I mean and the other thing about it is that when we talk about drugs mm-hmm. we're not talking about all drugs we're just talking about the illegal drugs you know mm-hmm. so there's plenty of people drinking mm-hmm. which is just as damaging a drug as as, as some of the the worst drugs that well professor nutt do you remember yeah, him with the ecstasy I, I quote I, yeah 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 i follow him he had alcohol rated as the highest harm factor yeah absolutely alcohol is involved in half of violent crime it's the number one drug in date rape three young people a week die in the uk from binge drinking right you know look at the other drugs compared to that and it's it's minuscule and the other thing is as well, legal highs, you know, legal highs have come about because chemists are trying to outsmart drug laws. Right. Otherwise they wouldn't exist. There's no reason to go looking for more drugs no. if, you're, if you legalise the ones that exist. Yeah. So again, you've got all these legal highs, all these synthetics, this new generation of drug takers, guinea pigs for these chemicals, which we don't know the side effects of in the long run and the harm that they're causing to their brains. Yeah. And that's another, that's a function of drug laws. A little bit like you were saying earlier on, you, you think, no, 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 this must be a conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. When, when, when we talk about like the prison indu- industrial complex, yeah. people are like, no, 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 there's not an industry around prisons. That's, mm-hmm. that's ridiculous. But, but I mean, it is true. It's not, I mean, it's out there in the open. No one's pretending these things. You can, you can research all of this yeah. stuff and find out its accuracy. No one's yeah. hiding it. The, yeah. the officials aren't hiding it. They'll admit it. They'll maybe use different words to describe it. But. The Bush clan have got investments in the prison industries. Corrections Corporation of America, for example, companies like that make tens of millions in political contributions for politicians and legislators to tighten drugs laws, to, to keep three strikes going, to put more and more people in prison so they can make more and more money off the back of them. Three strikes law in California. You do three crimes in a row, you're going to get 25 to life irrespective of the crime so you've got people that have stole pizzas five dollar pizzas who are serving 25 to life public in california was so outraged why should we be paying fifty thousand dollars a year of taxpayers money to house this guy who stole a pizza that was his last crime so they tried to get it repealed 
the people putting the money up to stop it getting repealed was the Prison Guards Union of California who put up the money in the first place to introduce the three strikes law and the founder of Broadcom, the exclusive provider of telephone services to the California state prison system. Every time you make a call from a prison, it's reverse charged to the person you call in. I called a prison for five minutes to my family in England from Arizona and they charged them about £60. Local calls about $10. Right. Yeah, so everywhere you turn, they're making money off the backs of the prisoners. Slavery was abolished under the Constitution, except for convicted felons. So now you've got this massive slave labor force. In Arizona, they pay the guys anywhere from 10 cents to 50 cents an hour that they use to compete against the manufacturing base of China and India. When you look at the rhetoric around this stuff, you referenced it earlier on. It's really great for a politician to stand up on a podium and say they're going to be tough on crime and the causes of crime. But being tough on something isn't the same as, as getting rid of it. Like, if they, they're not trying to heal all no. of these wounds. No. They get celebrated because they're, they're saying, we're going to hurt people harder than the other people. Yeah. It's, it's a very strange situation. The politicians that have got the most power in this day and age are the most deceptive, manipulative bunch of criminals that you could ever possibly imagine. If you can get out there and say to the public, I'm tough on crime, I'm going to increase sentences for drugs, and then get more votes by doing that, and then turn around and get £200,000 contribution from a private prison for helping them fill their prisons, and then in the back of your mind, you know that that public who you just got to vote for you, it's all their kids that are going to end up in those prisons. Chris Grayling right now, the Justice Secretary for this country, he's trying to build the biggest kids' prison in the Western world here in the UK. They're coming after the people's kids, and it's mostly going to be non-violent drug offenders because that's what mostly gets arrested. Right. So it's, you know, it's totally evil. The other thing is as well, in America you've got what's called a school-to-prison pipeline. That includes government policies such as cutting education, spending more on prisons, cutting programs, cutting youth centres like we've seen all across London. Another factor to bear in mind is that the music that's put out, a lot of the music encourages kids to deal drugs and commit crimes. And if you look at the through the stock market, because I'm a stock market guy, if you look at ultimately who owns the private prisons, if you look at ultimately who owns the record labels putting this music out, yeah, right. the two-third owns by the banks. Yeah. So it's the banking elite that control the government profiting from both right. sides. If they make money out of drugs, then, then, yeah, yeah. then it comes to them. It doesn't matter if it's music, it doesn't matter if it's the prisons, it doesn't matter yeah. any, any, any part of this process that's coming back to them. But what's blown my mind the most... What my research has led me to in the last year is to discover that the CIA is the biggest trafficker of drugs in the world. So you've got the federal government through the CIA bringing the drugs in. You've got the federal government through drug laws locking all the kids up who are taking their drugs. <laughs> it's just It just goes around like that. The journalist who first discovered that the CIA was bringing the drugs in. Have you heard of this movie, Kill, Kill the Messenger? Uh, I have heard of the movie, yeah. Yeah, Gary Webb. He was a Pulitzer Prize winning guy, you know. 
I think he was out in LA. His newspaper backed him up when he discovered this and they put it out there. And then the CIA came to visit them all and they ruined his career, said he was a conspiracy theorist. He ended up getting found dead in a hotel room. Two bullets to the head and it was ruled a suicide. Yeah. Now, since that, the CIA has actually admitted what he said was true. They've declassified it. This was during the Nancy Reagan, just say no to drugs era. Ronald Reagan and George Bush Sr., they were the ones running the country. And George Bush Sr. is a CIA guy. They're the ones who were bringing the drugs in. The drugs they were bringing in was cocaine. It was coming from South America. And it was getting airdropped and, 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 and landed all over America. Arkansas was one of the states. Um, Bill Clinton was involved in that for the money laundering side of it. The money was getting recycled into purchasing weapons for the Contras, who were rebel groups who were fighting in South America, who Reagan wanted to provide weapons to. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is declassified. I know, that's what I mean. You could, you could say some of this to someone on the streets that the federal government is the biggest you know, traffic of the drugs, and they would still look at you like right. you're a conspiracy theorist, even though this is declassified. I mean, this is my feeling about conspiracy theories. They're not really hidden. Like, the conspiracies that are there, they're not yeah. hidden. They are public record. Conspiracy theory was a term brought about by the CIA to discredit people who were pointing out things that they were doing. Yeah. Even the mafia, who the CIA worked closely with, the head Mexican cartel is allowed to operate because the amount of money and drug stuff that's going through the CIA. The head cartel, what they did was, sent to get trained in America by going over as the police and going over as the military. So the US could say, we're training the police and the military in Mexico. And then when those military and police guys go back to Mexico, they just go right back to the cartel. Right. That's how it works. Yeah, fuck. Yeah. I mean, there are some conspiracy theories that are complete nonsense and they distract from the reality of the actual yeah. real stuff that's going on. They do. Which is why it's right for them to, to ring alarm bells. But people really need to look at what's actually out there, publicly provable, is stuff that you you just yeah. people wouldn't believe, as you say. A hundred years ago, the federal government was saying the mafia was a conspiracy theory. Right. There is no organised crime in America. Right. While they were working with the mafia on certain things. Absolutely, yeah. and that's all documented. Yeah. Normally, I sort of say it, it's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you. So it's, always, it's always strange to say a pleasure about <laughs> a, a complicated sort of area. Of, and there has been some pleasure to be had in hearing your stories and, and stuff and your passion. But, but at the same time, yeah, I'm not pleased about the experiences <laughs> that you had to go through in any way. But the, the last thing I ask my guests is, is, is do you have anything to plug? Anything to plug? Yeah. I would just say that everything I went through was something that I needed to go through to help me develop as a person. And I think plugging is just too self-serving. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't want to taint. It definitely I don't want to, feels that way. I don't, I I don't want to taint yeah. what I've said to you to, to this evening by coming off at the end plugging anything. No, that's fair enough. Yeah. And I, I totally get that as I well. Think. Like after people have talked about all of this stuff, yeah. it's, it... it it is definitely a curveball. Like sometimes it can be having this question as part of the format of the show. Yeah. It is a strange moment for me sometimes when when I'm like when someone's like been talking about homelessness or yeah. like pow- powerful stories of love or whatever, mm-hmm. and then I'm like, right, <laughs> what is there to plug? But yeah. but that said, I mean, 
people probably would be interested to find the book and to find you online. Yeah. So with, with, with the proviso that you are not doing this kind of... Uh, in your own... You wouldn't have written this ending, but uh, this is not the kind of ending that you... you you think fits with the topics yeah. we've had but that said where can we find you okay sean atwood s-h-a-u-n-a-t-t-wood dot com is my book it's at sean atwood is my twitter sean atwood is my facebook <laughs> sean atwood is my youtube etc 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 and my blog is john shield journal and if anyone is interested in my books i do have four books out there and they can find all the details from links through all my social media brilliant yeah yeah, yeah. i mean <laughs> the, it, it, you, you, you know you you were right to say it shouldn't mm. fit but um, the only reason I sort of like pushed you for it is because I, <laughs> I know that my, the listeners, I mean, I'm fascinated to, yeah. to, to see more and read more. Um, so I'm sure that lots of people listening are. So yeah, and the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Okay, <laughs> audience, goodbye. I appreciate you spending your time listening to my story. And my goal in life really has been just to share my story uh, in the hope other people wouldn't make my mistakes or it ha- it would inspire them in some ways. So if you are inspired, then, you know, that makes me feel good. If you want to contact me or tweet me how you feel, I will retweet it or just send me a private email. And, you know, that will make me feel good as well about what I'm doing. So really appreciate your time. Thank you. And thank you. Bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> stand Up Tragedy is a variety night that I run where people stand up and they do tragedy we aim to make people cry until they laugh and laugh until they cry featuring comedians spoken word artists storytellers musicians and more looking at the harder and darker things in life with some laughs as well as some tears we try to make a safe space to talk about unsafe things that is happening at the Banshee Labyrinth Banqueting Room for its run in Edinburgh as part of the PBH Free Fringe from the 8th to the 30th of August at 7.30 every night apart from on Tuesdays because on Tuesdays instead of stand-up tragedy I'm doing some live recordings of Getting Better Acquainted so you can hear me talk to some of the guest hosts that I'm having as part of the main stand-up tragedy season on the Tuesdays at the same time, same place. As I just implied, Stand Up Tragedy is not just doing its normal show. We're also doing some really exciting collaborations and having guest hosts. Look on the Stand Up Tragedy website, www.standuptragedy.co.uk for more information about what we have in store. Stand Up Tragedy isn't just a live show, it's also a podcast. And you can hear loads of tragedy up there now. We've got like three years of back catalogues for you to go through if you haven't heard us before. Just like Getting Better Acquainted, you can find Stand Up Tragedy anywhere that podcasts go to hang out on the internet. The most obvious place that you might think of is iTunes, but there are many other outlets available to you. Go over there and subscribe or at least keep an eye on the feed because during August we're going to be putting out a hell of a lot of the tragedy that happens on our stage on the internet. So you don't have to go to Edinburgh, Edinburgh can come to you. This is a time where if you love the show, if you want to support what I do, you can really help me out by spreading the word about what I'm doing in Edinburgh this year. They're all free shows but hopefully people will give money at the end, that's how the Free Fringe works. In order to shout about it and let me know that you're shouting about it, you might want to follow me personally on Twitter where I'm at Goosefat 
101. Getting better acquainted on Twitter is at GBA Podcast. And then Stand Up Tragedy on Twitter is Stand Up for Tragedy. Please, please, please shout about all of these shows. Come along to my preview on Thursday if you can. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted.